would invite you back for the evening service tonight. Hope that you can come and join us. Alan Hawthorne will be here with us. I've ne brother, never met him, talked with him on the phone before. But uh, he is and his family are going to Indonesia as missionaries. I feel that we don't know a lot about. We've not had a missionary there before. So if you could be back with us for the evening service, we would be delighted to have you. For now, Romans chapter 7 and verse number 1. Paul writes, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This passage of Scripture sets forth, as it were, a preliminary verses for a chapter that has um, a lot of things to say. Paul has come to chapter 7 with um, several subjects, as it were, to be dealt with. But the one primary subject that he deals with in this chapter is that to deal with the fact that law is not the answer for living right. And what we mean by that is that uh, keeping a law is not the way that it, it will be for your life or mine to, to be, quote, living right. That's, he says it and makes it clear in chapter 7. That's not how you solve that problem. Our problem is sin, and the tendency is that we sin no matter what happens around us. And Paul's going to tell you the one way to break that and deal with that is located in this chapter, but it is not necessarily keeping a law. So consequently, we need to keep that before you as you start the chapter and understanding very clearly. Thank you, Randy. Very clearly, it is a matter that you and I both understand in the context of what we've been dealing with before. Paul has dealt with in chapter 6, is now building upon that chapter to talk about what he has here. Let me begin by telling you that Paul's faced the same battle of in preaching and teaching and dealing with people as we do, you know, as every pastor, every Sunday school teacher to you. And that is that there were two problems and two groups of people that created those problems. Group number one, group number one was a group of people who would say that since we're saved by the grace of God, we're free to live and to do pretty much as we please. That group would be called license. You know, that is, say, I'm saved by the grace of God, and since I'm saved by the grace of God, I can pretty well do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. That's called license. It's a license, and people see it as a, quote, a license to sin. They see salvation as a license to sin, but with God's blessing, which not could not be further from the truth. Obviously, that's impossible to embrace such an idea, but sadly, that's being propagated in our present society. I mean, right this moment, this issue is running rampant in some of our churches all across America, and these liberal pastors are preaching such messages to keep it alive. And many of what you'll read about as being seeker-friendly churches encourage the very same thing. 
teaching that it doesn't matter what you do, how you live, you come here and everything's okay. Let me tell you something, that's not true, and I don't care who tells you. That's not true. It's not okay for you to go out and do whatever you will and live any way you want. That is absolutely not right. It is absolutely wrong. It will remain wrong. It will be eternally wrong. And I might tell you, you if you really do know Christ to save you, you'll be chastened for your misbehaving. Because God is a good parent. And He does not let any of that get out of hand. And He certainly does not let it get unnoticed. But that's just one group. Those are called folks who believe in license. There's another group who, who believe in legalism. This other group would say, well, yes, we're saved by the grace of God, but we must keep the law of God in order to remain saved. That's legalism. And let me remind you of something. Either to get saved or to stay saved by keeping the law is legalism. Get it? Either to get saved or to stay saved, and, and the ideal is to keep that salvation in place, that's legalism. If you say you have to keep the law to get saved or you have to keep the law to stay saved. That is absolutely false. That's a devilish doctrine. That's, and yet, that's what legalism is. Now listen to me, and you listen to me good. Legalism is not having high standards for a church to live by. Now you spit that out right now, okay? That is not true. And boy, if there's ever been a poison that's been put in the water supply, that's been it. There's this idea that every time somebody has a conviction about something in this country or every time a church holds to a standard of holiness, we're looked upon as, oh, they're, they're legalists down there at the New Life Baptist Church. They believe you can't do this and you can't do that. Let me tell you something. It is not legalism to believe that men ought to wear pants and women ought to wear dresses. That's not legalism. That's not legalism. It is not legalism to believe that if you go to movie houses and you see things that encourage your lifestyle and contrary to what God's Word says, that's not legalism to get up and say it's not right. It's not legalism for a pastor to get up in a pulpit and tell you to abstain from every appearance of evil, including alcohol and drugs and anything else that alters your mind. That's not legalism. It is not legalism for a pastor to get up in a church and say to you that his young people, when he send them off to camp, wouldn't send his kids anywhere that they put boys and girls in the same swimming pool because that's mixed swimming and violates very clearly, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 9, let women adorn themselves in modest apparel. And that's not just for church, by the way. That's for everywhere. That's everywhere. It is absolutely unthinkable that God's people can think you can put a bunch of people, men and women, in a, in a big pool of water and, and everybody be in there in a setting and, and there not be some kind of lustful desire. That's a little bit out of the range of thinking. That just isn't smart. Mixed swimming is not for God's people. Not for God's people. And yet, you know what people do in order to get around it? Oh, that's legalism. Oh, boy, that's legalism down there. No, that's not legalism. shows immaturity and absolutely unscriptural perception to make such statement. Our problem is we've let the world so intimidate us by what we believe, what we stand for, and what we've held to for so many years. We think we have to change just to be up to date. Oh, no, let me tell you, my friend. This was up to date when it came off the press, and it will be up to date when it dies off in the dust of the earth. Because this is from God. And there's nothing more up to date than God and His will. Our problem is we want to conform because we want to be accepted. We want to do what they do. We want to play in their playgrounds and we want to play in their play pools. We want to do all the things they do and our attitude is to change whatever we are to comply with that so we can be accepted. Well, you look at one preacher, ain't never going to change that. 
And I can tell you something else. I've been so riled by this thing of these pastors taking their name Baptists off of their church signs and taking their pews out of their churches and putting in theater seats. Let me tell you something. That's something else. As long as I'm pastor of this church, you'll never see it happen here. I'm a, I'm a Baptist by conviction. And if I weren't, I'd have changed a long, a long time ago and probably never would have changed from being a Presbyterian. But that Baptist faith has some substance to it and some history that has honor. And I, for one, am not ready to give it up. And I say to you that this morning you and I need to make some decisions in our heart of hearts that we're not going to be blown about by every wind of doctrine and every position that everybody takes out there in, in la-la land. And there's so much of that going on right now. Brother Fair was just speaking to me earlier this morning downstairs about a church. It's out in a, in, a, in a community north of us. And this church is a rather large church. Not that old, not that big. I mean, not that small. A very large church. And these folks just built this crazy thing. And they're going to take all the pews out of it. And you know why they're taking the pews out of the church? Because they think it looks too churchy. You'll forgive me, but the devil is no stupid fool. It's just what he sells us on it is. We want to be a church, but we don't want to be a church. Well, let me tell you, this is a church. We hold high standards here for God's people. Are sinners welcome here? Absolutely. But we're not about to lower our standards so sinners feel comfortable. Did, I, did you get that? We're not lowering our standards so when sinners come in here, they feel good. Not going to do that around here. If a sinner comes through that door, he ought immediately be taken by the fact these people are different, and they're different because they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They look, act, and speak differently. Not because we look like he does, talk like he does, and make him feel like he's at home. He's not at home. This is not his crowd. This is God's people. And God's people ought not make the devil's people feel comfortable. We ought to be and make them feel uncomfortable in our setting. Now, when you go out there and witness to them, that's perfectly fine. You go out in the dens and the, and the places where you find them, certainly that's their territory. But even when you show up, there ought to be, as it were, a bright light coming in a dark place. And they ought to see you for who you are, and that is for somebody who's not going to bend and bow and back off just because you're in their territory. But yet, that's what they expect of us. They expect us to take our pews out so they'll feel more comfortable. They expect us to go to theaters where churches are meeting this morning and having a church, the garden that meets over there and gives out Applebee's certificates for everybody who shows up as an attendee. You'll forgive me, but that's a sorry way to have a church in a movie theater. That's a sorry place. What happened to our founding fathers who started out, as it were, in garage fronts? Were they ashamed of the gospel to the point, oh no, it's got to be elaborate, it's got to be nice, it's got to be neat. Let me tell you something about it. Those folks had the idea that wherever sinners would come and they'd share the gospel, they'd meet them there, that's for sure. But they had enough sense to know what church is. Church is not primarily for lost people. Church is primarily the body of Christ meeting in a location so that those folks can learn and be equipped in the gospel truth so they can take the message and obey Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You won't find it in the New Testament and especially in the epistles where it tells us to get sinners to come to church. It will tell you to go where sinners are, reach them with the gospel, bring them in, train them, see them baptized, let them join the fellowship, and then let them go out and reproduce as it were themselves. We've twisted this thing all around. we got this idea that we ought to be a club so everybody can join. This is not a club. This is a church that's been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is not up for individual choices of which they like and don't like and change what they don't so that they can make it comfortable for a lost and dying world. That's not what it's about. And I say to you, the Apostle Paul was smart enough a long time ago to deal with this issue because in Romans 6, he deals with license. And here in chapter 7, he deals with legalism, the law, the ideal of having to obey the law in order to go to heaven. And Paul has already proven you cannot be justified by keeping the law. And now in chapter 7, he's going to show you that you cannot be sanctified by keeping it. He's going to show us, Paul writes in this chapter, as a converted man, somebody who tried hard, and I tried sincerely hard and earnestly hard to arrive at holiness in his life. And he thought it would be breaking the power of sin on his life, and he thought he could do that by keeping the law. That's the testimony you're going to read in chapter 7. This is an unusual chapter. I say to you, it is wrong to interpret this chapter, by the way, and its truth to mean that we come to services... We stand up and testify to the fact that we have done wrong, we've acted in wrong ways, we fail to do the right things that we should have done, and then sit down and act like we've done some virtuous thing by confessing our sin and our failure. This chapter says, no, that's not the way it's done. If you're going to do that, if you're going to stand or sit and confess how wrong you've been and act like it's a good thing that you confessed it, then let me remind you of something what Paul does and says here in chapter number 7. You at least ought to do what he did, and this comes off in verse number 24, after Paul had sinned and acknowledged this work in his heart and his life. In chapter number 7 and in verse number 24, he said to himself and to us, he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Here's a man who's painfully aware that he should be living in the victory that Christ paid for on the cross when he provided him a provision so he could say no to sin. And in Paul's testimony in chapter 7, he's saying, when I failed, when I failed, when I accepted the fact that I sinned and I, and I sinned willfully, as it were, Paul's saying, I realized how wretched I was. Oh, wretched man that I am. By the way, you'll notice that the pronoun I is found here some 31 times in 25 verses. You'll find, as I did, I believe, that the word, the pronoun we is found 12 times. The pronoun my is found four times, and one time he uses the word myself. That means that 48 times in this section here that we'll come up to in chapter 7, you'll find here 25, 48 times in 25 verses a pronoun, reference to himself. Let me tell you something. Someone wrote it. I didn't. This is a picture of a defeated Christian, the Christian who has failed to reckon I dead to sin. Let me say something to you. I know this much in counseling we were trained to understand when you first started, started hearing somebody say I, me, my, and myself, you were to become keenly aware that this fellow's on a collision course with failure. Because something's wrong and dead wrong when a person gets caught up and intoxicated with self. And that's exactly what I believe Paul's testimony in chapter 7 is going to show us. It's extremely personal. It's extremely personal in the sense that it tells you, here's a man who tried very hard to be sanctified, set apart, and doing so by keeping a law. And he's going to tell you that's not how it happens. This chapter also has a key word. It's the word law. It's found 23 times. And I'd say to you that when you read the word law in chapter 7, and this, by the way, preliminary stuff is important. When you read the word law in chapter 7, you ought to understand there's two ways that God directs or, as it were, gives us a sense of understanding the word law. In our general use of the word is what David did. When David wrote Psalm 119 in verse number 97, he said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. 
He wrote again in Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. When David wrote that, he was thinking in terms of, a, of an expression of God's will, and he recognized that will as being wise and good and merciful. He also recognized that when you obey God's will, this word, this law that he was talking about, and you follow it, it brings God's blessing. It brings God's best. That's the way David saw it. But there's another way to see it. And that way is what Paul saw here in chapter number 7 of Romans. And that is, it was a code of order. It was a code of conduct. It was a code of responsibility. And in this particular case, it had to be obeyed under the auspices and the idea that it to fail to follow it, to fail to obey what God said, would bring God's anger and His wrath. And so that's what Paul is looking at in chapter 7. By the way, to make this situation even worse, the Jewish leaders of Paul's day and even before that had buried had buried the original law of God under a mountain of oral traditions. I mean, by that, they had these minute, hair-splitting rules and regulations that affected every aspect of the Jewish man's life. And they required that these be obeyed also. This is what Peter was talking about. If you read the book of Acts, chapter 15 and verse 10, Peter speaking to that council that day. He said, Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of these disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. What they were trying to do is get the Gentiles to have to be circumcised and all these other ritualistic kind of laws. And Peter stands up and says, you, you know full well we couldn't even obey those laws. And here you are trying to put them on these new converts of the Gentiles. What in the world are you up to? And he called it a yoke. That's a Jewish word and idea for something that's extremely binding, something that's very uncomfortable. And so that's the idea of what we're talking about in chapter 7. So with that in mind, note the text, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Verse 1 simply is a declaration of a truth. And uh, it is obvious, he says in the beginning, don't you know or know ye not. So that means that this truth that he declares in verse 1, they should have known. Notice also here he calls them brethren. Some suggest this idea would mean that he's talking about Jewish brethren, and they've proved that by the parentheses. He says, for I speak to them that know the law. That would typically be Jewish. And maybe that's exactly what he's saying, but it's neither here nor there because it would be equally applied in the case that whoever they are, they knew the law, and therefore they were responsible. Let me tell you this. should remember that the law was so much a focus in many Jewish homes that it almost became an idol to them. In fact, more than once in the reading of uh, a writing of some Jewish authors, they'll point out a simple fact. They'll point out to you that the last command that you'll find in the Old Testament is chapter 4 of Malachi, verse 4. And it simply says, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Those Jewish people say, I remind you that the very last commandment of the Old Testament is to remember the law of Moses. I say to you, when Jesus Christ showed up on the scene in Israel, who himself was their salvation, the Jews considered obeying the law real salvation. That's what they thought salvation was. If you just do the law, whatever the law requires, you be obeyed, you obedient to it, and you can be saved. I say this to you, faithful obedience to the law came to surpass, as it were, faith in God. And that's a shame because it was God who gave the law in the first place. So it shows you the idea, the twisted idea of what people had about the law and what it meant. Some suggest that Jesus was himself ultimately killed and crucified 
or what the Jews believed was blasphemy of God by his not holding up the law the way they did. And I can see how they would interpret that. But here in Romans chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Not only know you not, brethren, for I speak unto them that know the law, but here's what he said, and here's the basis of truth. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. This is uh, pretty much true in any society, and that is that the law hath dominion over a man or a woman only as long as he lives. I say this to you, and you can see it for sure. That is that the bottom line reason why many of these criminals will go out and commit an act of harsh, wicked crime, and then what they do is take a gun out and shoot themselves. It's very obvious that they want to be free from the penalty of the law. And therefore, they take the law into their own hands. They can take care of that penalty themselves. And it does, because uh, it's an interesting thing. You remember the story when Lee Harvey Oswald, he um, never served a minute of jail time or prison time for killing President Kennedy. What's furthermore, in fact, he never even stood trial for killing the President of the United States because a man by the name of Jack Ruby, if you recall, pulled a gun in a hallway there in Texas and shot that guy. What's amazing is, therefore, Oswald never stood trial for the killing of the president, and Jack Ruby never stood trial for killing Oswald because he died of cancer before he went to trial. Well, what's the deal here? How come law can't go further? Because when a man dies, law has no dominion over him. Whatever you do when you die, it's all said and done. You know, if you were to run up a great deal of debt, let's say you got to where you owed people $10 billion trillion. Did you know the moment you die, they can't collect a penny of that? I mean, it's just over with and done. Oh, they may go back and trace as far as they can to family and connection, but, but you know and I know. Uh, paper trails can be burnt and they get rid of that and there's just no way you're going to get the money. The point made is when a person dies, they die to the law. Death ended the law's force over people. You should keep in mind and keep before you that the correlation in these two chapters, chapter number 7 verse 1 is connected to chapter 6 and verse 14 where it said, And sin or for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. You need to keep that before you and you need to keep this before you. That death was both the wages paid for sin, and it was also the ending of law's dominion. It cut both ways, as it were. Paul states the truth in verse 1. Declaration of truth is, that as the law hath dominion over a man, only as long as that man lives. Now, look how he illustrates it. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7. The illustration of that truth is, in this verse, verse number 2, For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from it, and the law of her husband. And then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man couple of things here. One, in chapter 6, if you remember, Paul used the illustration of a master and a slave. In that illustration, he taught us how the believer should yield himself to God. He used the master-slave relationship. When he comes to chapter 7, he uses a new illustration. It's between a husband and a wife. And here he's teaching us as believers we have a new relationship to the law because we have a new relationship and union to Jesus Christ. That's what the chapter is going to teach. And Paul refers elsewhere in his epistles to the institution of marriage, so we don't necessarily need to get into all that. He likens it unto a relationship between Christ and the church. And may I say to you, if 
relationship between Christ and the church is eternal, then what does that make marriage? You see, the point is, Bible is clear regarding marriage. It's for better, it's for worse, but it's always forever. Because the relationship between Christ and the church is forever. And by the way, that's the illustration. That's led some pastors to begin a process they won't marry any lost people. And, I, and very frankly, as a pastor, I begin to see some of this. I begin to see that there is a distinct difference in the Scripture between saved people trying to do what lost people do and lost people trying to do what saved people do. It's interesting in a passage of Scripture, as uh, you would find like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, about a person is bound to her husband, a woman is, as long as he liveth. But if he dies, then she is free to marry again. Then it says, in the Lord. In the Lord. You find references of that quite frequently through the Scriptures. The point made is there seems to be a distinction here. Marriage isn't really, in the biblical sense of the word, for lost people. You say, are you nuts? No, because the Bible teaches that that marriage thing was the illustration of Christ in the church. Lost people are not a part of the church. That's why when they come to church, they don't feel a part of this thing. They shouldn't feel a part of this thing. They ought to feel out of bounds as much as a flea on an elephant. That's not the territory for them. The fact of the matter is, a person coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. The whole perspective changes. They understand marriage. My conviction is lost people don't understand marriage. They don't have a clue about it. <laughs> there are some saved people who don't have a clue about it. But the fact is, it's a matter of illustrated by Christ and the church. What that relationship is, is what a person who gets marriage ought to understand. What is marriage? Understand Christ in the church and you got it. You don't understand Christ in the church, you don't got it. It's that simple. And this passage of Scripture, Paul uses that illustration, and he's keenly aware of what Moses did. He said, because of the hardness of man's heart, Moses permitted divorce. But Jesus said from the beginning, it is not so. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth the putting away. That's divorce. Marriage is a binding commitment between one man and one woman for as long as as they live. That's the whole point of this passage in Romans 7 and verse number 3. Look at something else, or verse 2. Look at verse number 3. On the other hand, on the other side of the coin, if this woman ignores the law of marriage and marries another while her husband lives, she's called an adulteress. I found it interesting that the word called in verse number 3 is a Greek word that has this meaning. To bear as a title to be branded, to be labeled. In the context, it would imply that this woman should be publicly branded as an adulteress because she married another man while having a husband. By the way, just for the record, the word called in the Greek used here in verse number three is the same Greek word translated called in Acts number 11, verse number 26, where it says they were first called Christians at Antioch. They were branded that name. They were labeled that name. It was given as a public kind of display of who they were. So Paul, as it were here, sets forth in this text of Scripture a very simple thing. And I made my mind up. We'd only get this far today because I can't cover the third point. And that is this. First one, verse 1 is the declaration of the truth. Verse 2 is the illustration of the truth. Next Sunday, verse 4 and 5 and 6 is the application of the truth. I don't want you to miss that. But it comes next Sunday. We're stopping right here, right now. And I want to say this before we close. 
You see, people don't seem to get it yet that death is the penalty and the payment for sin. I've repeated it often, but it still hasn't got into some hearts. All have sinned, and babies included, but they did so in Adam. Because of our relationship of being born to this human race and our connection to Adam as our first representative, the fact is we all sinned in him. All people did. And all mankind is a sinner because of that relationship. And after that relationship is established and obvious, we sin the more. So we all sin. And people keep on sinning. But their original connection to being, as it were, out of rightness with God is because of the relationship with Adam. You understand this. Death, then, is the penalty and the payment for that sin. So everybody bears it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there's something else that needs to be understood. In the society in which we live, this is equally as important, I guess. And that is that unhappiness is a product of sin. Death is a penalty and a payment for sin, but unhappiness, unhappiness is a product of sin. Unhappiness is a product of sin. And everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. The fact of the matter is, there are folks who aren't. And the fact of the matter is, that some reason some folks aren't, not everybody, but for the most part, folks that are unhappy on a continuous basis is because of sin. So let me ask you a question this morning. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, are you happy? Or let me ask you again, are you unhappy? If you're unhappy, have you searched your heart and your soul to see what it is? It may be the reason why you're unhappy. Well, I can give you a sense of a Bible reason. Paul the Apostle wrote these words, and they are good words. They're found in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is somebody called God's psychology book. It really is Paul's psychology book. He wrote it under inspiration of God, and he wrote it while he was in prison. In chapter 4 and verse number 4, he starts out these words. I remind you, he's in prison, and he was in some of the worst conditions, or the most inhumane conditions a human had ever been put or placed while he was there, he wrote these words, chapter 4, Philippians verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. And by the way, the word moderation is translated in some Greek manuscripts when translated from Greek to English, sweet reasonableness. Let your sweet reasonableness be known unto all men. Uh, probably some of you didn't know you even had it, let alone how to display it, right? Sweet reasonableness. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, and whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, and whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. 
and those things which we have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want. Remember, he's in a prison. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Here's the question. Are you happy? You see, in the text of this passage of Scripture, it becomes crystal clear that happiness does not depend on circumstances. They depend on a relationship. And this relationship is with Lord Jesus Christ. And so here you have a man who was able to rejoice, and I believe carried with the ideal of being happy in a very unhappy set of circumstances. And this morning I challenge you with this simple truth. One, do you know Jesus Christ as personal Savior? And in relationship to that, is it a matter that you're obeying Him and you've died, as it were, to sin and to self and to the law, and you're allowing Him to work in your life to make you like Him? conforming to his image, to reading of his word, meditating, obeying it. Thirdly, then that produces a byproduct, which is happiness. If the byproduct is not there, it suggests that there's a problem up front with the first two issues. Either relationship with Christ is not right as an established beachhead, or two, we're not depending upon the Lord to work through his word in our life to make us like him. And therefore, there's a third problem. There is no happiness. There is no happiness. There is no happiness. So are you happy? It's a fair question. It's an honest question, and it's one I think everybody has to answer somewhere along the way. Are you happy because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or do you tend to be happy because of a momentary victory? How is it with your heart today? Can you say with the choir... It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Is it? Our Father in heaven, as we close this service this morning and come to a conclusion of this message, and as Paul has set forth very clearly a declaration of truth, and he's also set forth an illustration of this truth, and next week as we come to it, we see an application of it. I pray this morning you'll help us to ask ourselves, the questions concerning our relationship with you. Is salvation ours in Christ? Or is our salvation and what we're hanging on to something that we've concocted, something that we've worked up, some effort we've put forth? Or on the other side of the coin would be the question of how are we, as far as our process of becoming holy, being sanctified, are we that way because of the fact we're making an effort to obey the law? Are we sanctified because we've died to the law and have a new relationship with Jesus Christ and that relationship with Him is producing holiness in us? Help us to understand the law does not produce holiness. A relationship with Jesus Christ produces holiness. Just like that same relationship produces salvation, it produces sanctification. And salvation and sanctification work on the same foundation relationship with Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning you'll help us to see that. And sometimes, Father, when our process of holiness is not where it ought to be, 
it stems from our misunderstanding ours as a relationship. It's not about a relationship of verses of Scripture, whether we agree with them and do they teach this or do they teach that. That's not the issue here. The issue is a relationship with Jesus Christ and what that relationship produces in us. So I pray this morning you'll drive these truths hard and deep to our hearts, our lives, and I pray you'll change us. I pray you'll shock us into change. Father, if we don't wake up, we're going to drift right off into oblivion with the rest of a dying, dead world. And it's up to your people to wake up and stay awake and be able to face the issues that we all face and deal with the circumstances of what even Bible churches, is, churches are doing. And they're compromising and giving ground and giving up, surrendering, waving a white flag, and letting the world come into the church and tell us how they want it to be. May God have mercy upon the church of Jesus Christ. And Father, realizing that it begins with us, we can make a stand individually. We can raise our standard of holiness and our reference to our relationship with Christ to please Him, to bring honor to Him, to be, as it were, a person who is different so we can go out and make a difference. So I ask you this morning to speak to every heart, especially that man, woman, boy, or girl who's here without Jesus Christ as Savior. For that Christian, especially for that Christian man, woman, boy, or girl who has not separated from the world and given themselves over to their relationship with Christ and to pleasing Him. For that person who hasn't been obedient to the Lord and followed Him in believer's baptism. Whatever those cases are that may be stumbling blocks and may be baggage that's extra weight that we need to set aside and come clean with you and to walk with you and live for you and to enjoy our relationship with you in holiness. I pray you'll speak to us now as we wait before you. The invitation is not just something we do to cap the service and leave. It's a time, Father, for us to make decisions, and I pray you'll prompt them to be made this morning. Have this time spent here to be a wise, eternal investment, and may it change us for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282 in your hymn book. Just as I am without one plea, if God has spoken to your heart this morning, we'd urge you and encourage you and exhort you and beseech you that you act upon it. One of the saddest things in all of Christendom is that we know so much, but do so little about what we know. And as a preacher of that gospel, I can't think of anything that's worse. To be playing marbles with diamonds, great eternal truths, and yet them not having any impact on our lives. Vance Havner is the guy who said, well, it's like playing marbles with diamonds. And I believe he's absolutely right. Marbles with diamonds. This morning, if you don't know Christ, we want you to know him. For whom to know is life eternal. But not just out there eternal, a life that's more abundant right now. And if you do know him, then we want to encourage you to walk with him, live for him. Be distinctively different. Don't be like the world. Don't march to their drumbeat. Don't walk in their steps. Don't follow their footprints. Don't embrace their philosophy. Don't listen to their newscast and get their cuts on it. You listen, as it were, to God himself and his word and know what you stand for, and it won't matter who tells you what. You'll be able to sift it through the filter of what God says and does. If God has spoken, we invite you to come. We'll do what we can to point you to his word to get a Bible answer for it. If God's spoken, you obey him. As we sing together, 282 verse 1. Just as...
God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. Thank you for being with us today. I appreciate you very much. And I trust the Lord will get you back here with us tonight. Six o'clock for the service. Brother Alan Hawthorne, missionary to Indonesia. Hope you'll come and meet his family. Choir practice at five. Men's prayer downstairs, 530. And the service begins at six. Hope you can come. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we ask your blessing on your word that's been shared, taught this morning in Sunday school and worship service. And we know that it needs a touch from you to be effective in our hearts and our lives. I pray you'll bring forth that kind of fruit now. Bless as we go. Thank you for our membership and their faithfulness. Bless them, I pray, as they leave this place. Give them a good, safe afternoon. Bring them back to the evening service. And bless the Hawthorns as they travel in. Be of safety to them. And pray you will bless and use them in our fellowship to exhort us to more missionary-mindedness. And help us to be an encouragement to them on their journey to raise their deputation. Bless again. Now, those of our fellowship, uh, Ms. Walker and others who have a heavy burden today, and Brother Harold, who faces a test tomorrow, I pray you'll be with these folks and bless and meet their very need and, and pray you'll encourage them through these uh, valleys through which they're walking. Thank you again for your goodness, your grace. Again, we pray for our troops and those battlegrounds of the world. I pray please be with them today and give safety and protection. Encourage those men. The Americans appreciate their work, their investment. And, Lord, help us to pray for them more than just here on a Sunday. But as the week goes along, help us to be reminded to pray for their safety and direction of your will in that process around the world. Guide us as we go now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed. Amen.